Hello everyone. In this video, I'm going to read my article, which is a couple of years old now, called What is the Global American Empire, also known as the Gay? While it will be shocking to some that this article needs to be written, apparently it does need to be. Keep a bookmark to this to share with friends and family whenever anyone asks you what is the gay or else whenever a fellow traveler and comrade starts to sound like George W. Bush circa 2004. What is the global American empire? It is the post-World War II global order maintained by American hegemony. The gay is marked by a financial system underpinned by the US dollar and such entities as the World Bank and the IMF. It has occupied Europe since 1945, with military bases all over its territories and such supranational holding mechanisms as NATO and the EU to control both the foreign and domestic agendas of European nations. Therefore, the national governments of European nations are, in fact, no better than regional colonial administrators. How does the gay maintain its power? Four main ways. First, through military supremacy. The USA outspends every other nation by some distance. American nationalists such as Donald Trump have argued that European nations who do not fulfill their NATO defense spending obligations should, quote unquote, pay up. But this is to misunderstand the function of NATO. Trump's demand was essentially an imperial call for colonies to pay for their own subjugation. Why should Americans pay for Europe's defense? Ask American populists. In truth, US military spending is not for Europe's defense at all, but to ensure its continued helplessness. It is simply the cost of empire. Even besides this, the premise that Europe cannot defend itself is somewhat farcical, even though it is never seriously questioned. Russia has never even come close to conquering Western Europe in history, and it is currently making seemingly hard work of it just to take a portion of Ukraine. Remember, I wrote that back in 2022, now 2024, and they're still making hard work of taking Ukraine. The combined military budgets of the UK, France, and Germany are almost three times that of Russia, while Italy and Spain still maintain armies of over 150,000 strong. Recall, this has been in peacetime with an implicit guarantee of US defense. Any of those nations could re-militarize far beyond current numbers if the call arose, as they have done throughout their long and glorious histories. The gay serves to curtail such thoughts, as well as to prevent the European nations from worrying about their traditional rivals, namely each other. Hence, Europe has lived in a gay, postmodern, post-national, ahistorical fiction for over 70 years. Beyond Europe, the gay ensures global compliance with their order using its military might. In the last instance, nations that 
will not play ball, are simply bombed into submission, as were, for example, Serbia and Iraq, under the guise of remaking alien foreign cultures in America's image as a quote-unquote liberal democracy. Second, the gay maintains control through its dominance over the global financial system underpinned by the US dollar and the IMF. Before military might is required, the gay favours financial leverage as its favourite tool of control. Any nation that does not comply, let us say Cuba or Iran or Venezuela or Zimbabwe, are subjected to punitive sanctions in which the USA threatens all other nations to boycott the quote-unquote rogue state and branded as enemies. The average American is encouraged to view the average Venezuelan, say, as an enemy, not because of racial otherness, far from it, but because he's a quote-unquote socialist and therefore not one of me. The same Venezuela who, Venezuelan who has moved to the USA and adopted American ways can now be hailed as a success story for quote-unquote capitalism on Fox News or as proof that the American socialist left are good and virtuous people on CNN. The net effect of such sanctions typically causes the governments of rogue states to move to emergency command and control economies which suffer shortages and hyperinflation. Once the rogue state is desperate enough, it must beg the IMF for a loan. The IMF must be repaid in US dollars. Therefore, the rogue state cannot inflate its way out of debt. Meanwhile, the USA, as hegemon of the gay and the beneficiary of US dollar supremacy, can inflate its way out of debt. In this way, the USA can run up an annual fiscal deficit of $1 trillion and total public debts of over $30 trillion, while demanding that a nation like Zimbabwe must quote-unquote live within its means, like some sort of F.A. Hayek simulator. Often an IMF intervention has resulted in famine for the nation in question. Studying a list of IMF interventions since its inception would be instructive. Third, the gay is a regime characterized by the techniques of soft persuasion and propaganda. Its official ideology might be characterized as anti-tradition. In the words of Julius Evola, a civilization that represents an exact contradiction of the ancient European tradition. That means non-whites and other historically excluded minorities, such as Jews, have hierarchy over whites. That means that the moral norms and practices of LGBT plus 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 QIA blah 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 people must prevail over those of straight people. That means that feminism must prevail over the ancient patriarchal order. That means materialist atheism must prevail over transcendental religion. That means a banal and levelling reign of quantity must prevail over any and all meaningful qualitative differences between people. This is the gay's message, which is pumped out through the avenues of its propaganda 24-7, through every media and social media outline, 
through every institution, through all otherwise hierarchical organizations, and from the top of every government. Enormous resources are committed to ensuring the subjects of the gay receive this messaging in all times and at all places. Commissars, known as a quality, diversity and inclusion officers, are employed to punish any transgressions. Fourth, the gay subjugates its colonies through the method of demographic change, through mass non-white immigration. In 1945, Europe, unlike America, was overwhelmingly white. This was unacceptable to the gay, who required, for the purposes of a uniform policy across its empire, for all vassal states to enjoy the same diversity as the USA. Thus, the project to remake Europe in America's image. The gay cannot allow there to be test cases that have not embarked on this suicidal policy. Domestic politicians who resist in any nations are branded as fascists or else exiled from public life and vilified like the late great Enoch Powell in the United Kingdom. Public opinion on this issue simply does not matter. Nations as ethnically homogeneous as Ireland are rebranded in the American mold as proposition nations where in an African who arrived in the last two years is quote-unquote just as Irish as someone whose family has lived there for 500 years. This is the logic of a settler nation which welcomes all newcomers. Why do you call it the gay and not any other name? Vladimir Putin suggested the empire of lies, which I like, but which both failed to take off and which fails to capture the specifically American nature of the gay. Many older dissidents prefer ZOG, which stands for Zionist Occupation Government, and draws attention to the specifically Jewish and pro-Israeli nature of the post-1945 order. Whatever truth there may be or may not be to that analysis, the term both attracts the eye of Sauron and heavy associations with neo-Nazism. For these reasons, the term gay has been preferred. More substantively, however, I feel it lets rather too many people, specifically the elite white Americans, as well as insane Israel-obsessed evangelicals, off the hook and encourages you to overlook the complicity of the American order in general with this project. Bronze Age Pervert has suggested an alternative recently, the GNC, or let's just say global N-word communism. This is partly motivated by what BAP sees as the hijacking of the rights agenda by Catholic integralists and other religious groups who wish to take the focus from race onto safer areas such as the cultural impact of porn. BAP outlines how the USA, not Russia, has always been the driving force behind anti-colonialism, post-colonialism, and the social elevations of blacks to the right uh, to sorry the social elevation of blacks to right perceived historic wrongs he has charted in many episodes of his podcast the american drive to destroy the old european order and its empires which mirrors in surprising ways older analyses by traditionalists such as julius evola however i have some issues with the term gnc Communism 
puts one in mind of the Cold War. And BAP seems, in some obscure way, to wish to save the liberal or capitalist right from the implications of his own analysis. BAP himself, along with our mutual friend, the shaman Thomas 777, has done much great work to show that, in actuality, the USA barely fought any Cold War against the USSR at all, but rather strove to outdo it to be more egalitarian, more gay, more racially equitable, and so on than the socialist bloc was. BAP seems to wish to pin all of this on the left, the quote-unquote left, whereas I, in the reactionary tradition of Carlyle, Evola, and indeed Curtis Yarvin, would simply say this is the logic of liberal democracy and is a function of Americanism per se. Communism even if BAP does not like it, seems to get neoliberalism off the hook. And honestly, it makes him sound like he's angling for a backdoor return to Reaganism or Thatcherism, which I somehow doubt. For all these reasons and more, I prefer to stick with gay rather than a job GNC. But is not the gay simply a continuation of the British Empire? This line, often lazily trotted out, is one which has barely had any thought attributed to it whatsoever. It is truth that the corrupt figure of Winston Churchill did more than any man to gift the assets of the British Empire to the Americans. And I've since charted that in extreme detail on my uh, cigar streams and on the deepest lore looking at the Adam Curtis Oceans Apart. Uh, I think that I've put that beyond doubt that Churchill himself, the figure of Churchill, is the man chiefly responsible for this. And that the British elite, after the war betrayed its people, to offload the empire as soon as humanly possible. But it is not true that the British empire was substantially the same as the gay in any but the most superficial aspects. In fact, one could justly argue, as Bronze Age pervert rightly has, that the gay is the exact inverse of the classic colonial empire as exemplified by the British. While it is true that the empire was a net cost for the British people, at its height they spent £2 for every £1 they got back, its real measure should be in power and not money. The money spent is simply the cost of empire. Empires always cost money, okay? In this respect, the British Empire and the gay have some similarities. For example, in its advocacy of free trade, as Pierre Vandenberg explains. This is Vandenberg. Starting in the late 18th century and increasingly in the 19th, Britain became a champion of free trade but it was in its interests to do so. Indeed, by then, Britain had become the first shipping nation in the world, the leading industrial economy, the supreme naval power, and the largest colonial country. In effect, the advocacy of free trade by Britain was little more than a disguised request for free commercial access to the whole world, including, of course, its rivals' colonies. Some of the weaker colonial powers, such as Belgium, had no option but to accept the opening of its colonies to free trade. But 
most resisted strenuously. The fostering of economic dependence of the colony on the metropole meant principally the prevention of self-sufficiency. This could be achieved negatively by discouraging the development in the colonies of industries that would compete with home industries. In the 19th century, for example, Britain, despite her advocacy of free trade for other countries, was concerned with Indian competition for the British textile industry, trying everything to stifle it. Positively, economic dependency of the colony was fostered through highly specialized development of a few products for export. In the aggregate, the colonial world produced a wide range of goods, but the monoculture of cash crops often prevented in individual colonies. Sugar and its byproducts in the Caribbean, coca in the Gold Coast, which is now Ghana, ground nuts in Senegal, sisal in Tanzania, and so on. Monoculture meant extreme dependence since the crop in question was rarely a basic subsistence crop and was scarcely ever consumed locally in significant amounts. The French, for example, produced wine in Algeria, a Muslim country where religion forbids alcoholic beverages. After nearly a quarter of a century of independence, Ghana, the world's leading producer of cocoa, still imports most of the little chocolate it consumes from Britain. So you could understand what they're saying. They grow the raw cocoa there. It gets shipped to Britain. Britain changes the cocoa into chocolate bars and then imports it back into Ghana. Not only were colonial cash crops not consumed locally, but they also took away much land from subsistence agriculture, thereby leading oftentimes to a decline in the native standard of living and a deterioration in the quality of their diet. High yield, low quality root crops such as manioc and yams, for instance, were substituted for more varied and proto-richer cereal and bean crops. In extreme cases, such as in the West Indies, food has to be massively imported because nearly all available arable land was in sugarcane. Dependency thus generally meant impoverishment as well. Paradoxically, the more developed the colony was in terms of its export productivity, the worse the diet of the population. Black South Africans, for instance, have one of the highest instances of kwashiorkor, uh, a nutritional disease caused by a starchy diet, even though their country is by far the most highly developed industrial power on the African continent with one of the continent's highest per capita income. An additional source of dependence of colonial economies was that the few commodities, whether mineral or agricultural, in which they specialized were highly susceptible to extraordinary price fluctuations on the world market or alternatively were produced under conditions where the colonial power artificially imposed by force a very low price. Today, the United States employs the same basic power mechanism as the British did. This is simply the empire part of the gay. A second similarity is in the use of the British tactic of indirect rule. Here is Vandenberg on the British system once again. The second limitation of indirect rule is that its effectiveness rests on a give and take basis 
and thus puts limits on what the conqueror can do. The role of native ruler in a system of indirect rule is a very delicate one. If he becomes entirely the stooge of the colonial regime, he loses all credibility and legitimacy with his people and thus ceases to be effective, for his actions will be resisted and sabotaged and his orders ignored. If, however, he sides with his people and resists too openly the colonial administration, he is likely to be replaced by someone more pliable. The native chief is thus perpetually performing a balancing act between the colonial rulers and his subjects. The former must see him as a useful collaborator, the latter as a buffer and protector against excessive exploitation. That posture, in turn, can only be maintained if the colonial power is content with the status quo and does not seek to radically alter the system of production and to intensify the exploitation. In short, indirect rule is ideal in state-organized societies where the colonial power is content to be only moderately exploitative and to leave the status quo largely undisturbed. Now, this also happens perfectly to describe the relationship between the governments of European nations and their populations today. It exposes to the fiction that Liz Truss or Boris Johnson, for example, have been leaders of autonomous, uh, of the autonomous government of the United Kingdom, rather than a supine regional vassal of the gay. The glimpse of the true feelings of the British were registered in a film that is otherwise perfect gay propaganda, starring Hugh Grant as Tony Blair. That film was Love Actually. When Grant's British Prime Minister stands up to the American president to wild cheers from the crowd, the film reveals the inner feelings of a subjugated people. Again, this is the empire part of the gay. However, this is where the similarities between the gay and the British Empire end. Unlike the British Empire, which largely maintained local traditions, as well as, for the best part, racial hierarchy and segregation, gay destroys culture and traditions wherever it goes. It promotes racial mixing and demanding that people from Europe to uh, Afghanistan worship blacks, as shown by the frankly ridiculous George Floyd mural painted in Kabul before the Taliban took back over. The British Empire was openly racist, ascribing the supposed shortcomings of the natives to innate genetic disabilities, which is to say the superiority of whites over non-whites, while the gay insists either, in the case of the weak false opposition centre-right, on the total equality of the races, or in the strong case of the left itself, or the inner party ideology properly stated, the superiority of non-whites over whites. This is the real difference between the British part of the British Empire and the American part of the gay. For an ordinary British person living in the empire, as Bronze Age pervert has shown, 
there were social and material benefits for belonging to the rulers of that empire. There was status. There was opportunity to live with servants and underlings. In other words, while colonialism largely was not good for the colonized, the colonizer was rewarded. This is the colonial part of classic colonialism. The gay, in contrast, confers absolutely no benefits to either the colonizer or the colonized. The rewards instead go to the obscenely rich financiers such as Larry Fink or Ralph's mascot avatars of gay ideology such as the obscenely fat Lizzo. The ordinary American gets nothing but general abuse from its own ruling class as they are denigrated to work harder as tax cows for the likes of Lizzo, just as the ordinary colonized European gets nothing as their history and culture are torn up and denigrated in front of their eyes as a massive black ass twerks in their face. This is the global as opposed to colonial part of the gay. Next question. Is this not just a European rehash of post-colonial victimology? Not in any respect. The core difference between the old European empires, which benefited Europeans and largely sucked for the colonized, apart from a few bridges and railways and infrastructure and things like that, are outlined by Arthur de Gobineau right here. This is Gobineau. The English are the masters of India, yet their moral hold over their subject is almost non-existent. They are themselves influenced in many ways by the local civilization and cannot succeed in stamping their ideas on a people that fears its conquerors, but is only physically dominated by them. It's, it keeps its soul erect and its thought apart from theirs. The Hindu race has become a stranger to the race that governs it today, and its civilization does not obey the law that gives the battle to the strong. External forms, kingdoms and empires have changed and will change again, but the foundations on which they rest are from which they spring do not necessarily change with them. Though uh, Hyderabad Lahore and Delhi are no longer capital cities, Hindu society nonetheless persists. A moment will come in one way or another when India will again live publicly, as she already does privately under her own laws, and by the help either of the races actually existing or of a hybrid proceeding from them will assume again, in the full sense of the word, a political personality. And he wrote that in the mid-19th century and fast forward 100 years, and so it came to pass. The British Empire was at its very best a civilizing force and at its very worst a ruthlessly efficient exploitation engine. But at no point did it seek to fundamentally annihilate the cultures and traditions of the people it subjugated. The gay does. The gay is a uniquely evil force in history, totally unlike previous colonial empires. The gay seeks total transformation of a culture in its own image using mass psychological warfare, as it did in Germany after World War II, on its subject populations 
and even on its own, that is the American population itself. It is a sick anti-civilization cancer, a kind of all-consuming, all-destroying vortex that will not stop until everyone in the world has lost their history. It is especially awful for white Europeans, a group its scapegoats and holds as pariah at the bottom of its case system. They are also viewed as morally debased, ritually impure, genetically inferior, or whatever the rationale for their invidious treatment by accident of birth, and for reasons quite unrelated to individual merit, behavior, or actions. As the stigma is believed to be immutable, there is nothing which the stigmatized individual can do to escape it. That, by the way, was Vandenberg's description of the untouchables in the Indian caste system. And that is the same position that the white European faces in the gay today. This is the lot of the white European in the gay. He has no choice but to oppose it with every fiber of his being or become complicit in his own subjugation. But this is true, albeit to a lesser degree for now. For all men and women of whatever background, we face a totally evil enemy. The gay has no redeeming features. It cannot be defended from the point of view of anyone who cares about humanity. It is anti-humanity and will destroy all you love. Total opposition to the gay is a bare minimum requirement for anyone who travels with us. No ifs, no buts. It defines our friend-enemy distinction. Well, thank you for listening, ladies and gentlemen. Do let me know your thoughts in the comments. I encourage everybody to subscribe to my Substack. Uh, it is completely free now, although you can support me financially there if you'd like. Uh, I also recommend you buy my courses at the Academic Agency. The best deal is probably the Trivium, the advert for which I will play in a moment. Well, all it remains for me to say is get out. Academic Agency.